Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us to the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, online writer here at IFA Magazine, and joining me on the podcast today is our editor, Sue Whitbread. Hello, everyone. We're, we're talking investment today, but a little bit of a different twist on investment because in the investment world, we love to talk about economic theory, but so often it's treated as if it's therefore fact. Uh, but when it comes to reality, markets don't always follow those textbook theories. So on the podcast today, Brandon and I are really pleased to welcome back Jordan Sriharan uh, as our guest. And Jordan is a fund manager on the multi-asset team at Canada Life Asset Management. And he's got some interesting views on this subject. Jordan, welcome back to IFA Talk. You're one of a rare bunch, you know, of people that have been invited back. Hi, morning, Sue. Morning, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jordan. It's great to have you back on the podcast, as Sue said. Um, so much has happened over the last 12 months. Could you tell us what you believe they've shown us about economic theory and market reality? Sure, Brandon. It's, it's been one of the most widely forecast recessions in a generation, really. A traditional boom-bust economic cycle um, that we recognise from the, from the textbooks. And I think to set the scene, it'd be useful. You know, there, there has been excess spending by both government and the consumer in the aftermath of lockdown. It's pushed aggregate demand higher, while global supply chains disrupted by the pandemic forced aggregate supply lower. And very simply, uh, we've seen higher prices, which are a natural consequence. So low interest rates were no longer leaded, uh, throw in geopolitics, and it's clear that central banks needed to change course. So we've seen significant amount of monetary policy tightening over the last 16 months, uh, almost the, the, the quickest tightening policy cycle we've seen in a generation. And um, what that has led to is a lot of economic forecasters coming out and saying, ah, well, we've seen um, rate hikes happen at a phenomenal rate. And as a result, uh, we've got lots of insight and we think this is happening too quickly, too slowly, too aggressively, too calm. But the majority have come to the same conclusion. And that is the only thing that we should expect to accompany this level of tightening should be a full-blown recession. And that is, that is the message, run for the hills. However, fast forward 16 months from when the Fed first raised rates in March of last year, and the reality appears very different. And so what, what, why do we have this disconnect? And the first point to that is really the transmission mechanism by which everyone assumed we would have this, that would cause a recession. And that is that higher interest rates would lead to higher mortgage costs, higher borrowing costs, higher housing costs, and that would impact, negatively impact consumer spending. That, that was the first order effect of higher interest rates. However, the reality is, and as we look back, perhaps a bit in, in hindsight, is that, and let's take the UK for an example, 35% of the population have no mortgage at all, 30% have mortgages, and the other 30% rent. Furthermore, 84% of those with mortgages are on fixed rates, having migrated from about 50% in 2016. So what we're seeing in reality is that those exposed to interest rate highs interest rate rises through high mortgage costs are actually somewhat shielded 
from that 16 months from when we first seen interest rate hikes. And so this idea that higher interest rates transmit immediately to consumer behavior and spending is in reality not, not the case today. And actually when we look at some Bank of England data, we can see that the, the refixing rates of mortgages and that are above 5% don't actually um, become the majority of mortgages that are being refinanced until Q3 of 2024. So there is still a large lag of consumers, mortgage owners, who have got another year to go until they have to remortgage. And then we're seeing a significant hump of those on this higher 5% plus remortgage rate. And so um, that's, you know, that, that's very much a UK story. And I'd add a second point to that, which is that I think the UK property market is is, is classic dinner party chat, right? We, we sit there in our myopic view of the world, which is the UK housing market. And the reality is, you know, the, the US market is, is far more important to global investors, which we consider, you know, us to, to sit within. And so in the US, when we look at their mortgage market, they actually generally purchase a 30-year mortgage as opposed to a two-year or a five-year mortgage that we have in the UK. And so when rates move higher as they have done in the US, consumers simply don't move house because they don't want to remortgage onto a higher rate. Now that may have negative implications for their housing market, but if consumers are not moving house because rates are too high, that's not impacting their consumer spending. And we can see that the spending um, rates both in the UK and US are remarkably robust. So I, I guess to, to, to summarize all that, you know, the reality is, is quite different from the economic theory that these forecasters provided us with a year and a half ago. Um, but you know, spending has not slowed. Um, and that's despite the running down of, of excess savings accumulated during the pandemic. Um, but the reality does lie somewhere in the mortgage market that's telling a different story to what we expected to be uh, happening in, in financial markets today. Mm, that's interesting. I must confess, it's more years than I would care to remember since uh, since I did my economics degree. But economic theory, it talks about working with lags, just as you've alluded to there, Jordan, about the lagged impact of fixed rate mortgages, but also the lagged impact of monetary policy. I wonder if you could talk to the importance of this, especially in the context of what it means now for investors. Absolutely, Sue, and that's a really good point. And the theory does make allowances for lags in, in, the, in monetary policy and in, in government policy. These things don't happen immediately. Um, and, the, and the reality today um, is showing that there is a there, there is a clear lag to, to how monetary policy is working. And we should add that monetary policy is something of a blunt tool at the same time. Sure, it, it raises the cost of financing for both corporates and consumers, but it it works in different ways in different time frames. And I think the mortgage point from the previous question alluded to that. Um, and so I think what is interesting, and I think this is a reality where reality is departed a bit from the theory, is that 16 months after the first rate bites from, from the Federal Reserve, um, and to our mind, the reality is that economic theory of of the past hasn't been updated to understand what happens to an economy's reaction function 
after almost 15 years of quantitative easing and, and excessively, excessively low interest rates. So if we've all grown accustomed to cheap financing, why wouldn't we assume that's a permanent feature of economic life? And I think that is where, you know, theory in, in, in time will get round to understanding the experiment of the last 15 years from a monetary policy perspective and think about what happens to um, very, very deep rooted consumer behavior and, and, uh, and spending patterns. And so to, to that point, the lagged impact is, is, very, is very much important, but I don't think we have a real steer on how these lags um, occur after these uh, periods of what they have turned themselves extraordinary monetary policy. And I think that's the, the lagged effect we're talking about today. It's, it's no ordinary lagged effect that we read in the, in, in the textbooks. There is another element um, that is almost behavioral economics that we need to apply on top to understand why today we haven't seen um, the, the, the impact of higher, higher interest rates on, on the global economy. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Everyone is talking about when the UK will enter a recession. Why do you think it hasn't arrived yet? And does it really matter? Yeah, this uh, the, the UK recession is, is a fascinating question. And why hasn't it arrived? Well, I... I I think I, I spoke earlier about forecasters that have been forecasting this inevitable recession. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happened in reality is that they have thought about, well, without, without committing to it, the idea of an exogenous event occurring in financial markets. And to them, that exogenous event shocks the financial system um, and in turn shuts down parts of the economy through through, through a lack of finance or a lack of capital available. But I don't think forecasters want to specifically mention what that exogenous event might be, because it's quite foolhardy to say, I predict the demise of Rome next week, or I predict you know something particularly um, brutal to occur, because it's, it comes with plenty of um, reputation risk, should I say. However, if we, if we think back, we had the LDI debacle under the Trust administration back in September of last year, quite clearly driven by a period, uh, a new period now of higher interest rates. Fast forward six months and we had Silicon Valley Bank and their problems on their balance sheet with, um, with, 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 the, with the lower valuations of government bonds in their, on, on, on their balance sheet. And so again, again driven by a, a, a new era of higher interest rates, it wouldn't be um, you know, it wouldn't be unrealistic to assume there might be another exogenous event in six months' time. The problem is trying to forecast that and credibly come out with any um, any reputation intact by by doing so. And I guess people will talk to the U.S. commercial real estate market as an area that they're worried about. They'll talk about private credit, but the reality is they won't they won't nail their sale to the mast because it, it, it doesn't come with any upside ultimately. But I think I think in reality this is what forecasters are trying to um assess when 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 they're forecasting the, the UK recession coming along. So um but why why hasn't it arrived, Brandon, to talk to the, your your answer um more personally, why hasn't it arrived? Well, one is 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 the mortgage cost story that I mentioned earlier, and I, I believe it's still manageable 
today. That might not be the same story in, in 12 months' time as I mentioned. There are more people rolling onto higher refinancing rates in 12 months' time. Um, so that's still manageable. But there is a second event, um, and that is is second event. There's a second factor, which is the labour market, the UK labour market, which is, you know, in, in, in robust health, so to speak. And we can see that some of that might be structural. That might be what the labour market looks like today, you know, in our post-Brexit world. Um, and some of it might be cyclical. We know that there are particular vacancies in the leisure and tourism sector that really haven't been filled post the pandemic. So there are, there's lots of examples that suggest to us labour market in the UK remains robust. And I think that's important because as long as vacancy rates are high and wage bargaining uh, and consumers are in a strong wage bargaining position, it's very hard to see um, how consumer spending tells us, you know, immeasurably. The, the momentum is with the consumer. And in that respect, it's hard to see aggregate demand dropping as a result, corporates generating less revenue, and as a result, share prices coming down and, and, and the nature of that kind of cycle. So from, from our conclusion, um, it hasn't arrived yet, but it, but it seems to be with good reason. What, what, what I would finish with when, as, as I answer that particular question, and I'll come back to, to our inverted commas forecasters who we think are forecasting an exogenous event, but are not willing to put a particular marker on what that event might be. I think our experience of the great financial crisis is quite telling here. And that was that when banks stopped lending, the economy around the economy around them shuts down. That's just that's natural, um, and it shuts down quickly. And that actually showed itself to have a very um, immediate negative impact on consumer spending it, almost overnight in in two thousand and eight. Banks stop lending, economy shuts down. People think I can't spend any money. There is something wrong here, despite me not seeing physically, um, you know what what the problem might be. And so. Whilst we've avoided it for now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would place some probability on an, on an exogenous event causing credit to dry up very quickly and that in turn causing consumer sentiment to, to dip materially lower. And I would add just on that without going off topic too much, we have seen that financing is, is slowing down. If we look at, we look at the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Survey, which is showing respondents um, that have noted a tightening in, in credit standards and the availability of credit. We see it in Bank of England data, again, um, where credit availability to unsecured credit is drifting lower and that trend is, is on a downward um, slope. Mm -hmm. And so when the supply of credit starts to, starts to meaningfully dry up, then you can quite uh, clearly see consumer spending slow, corporate spending slow, and that, that could be the trigger. So whilst we're looking at everything through the lens of aggregate demand, which is higher rates, less spending, we also need to be aware of, of um, a recession through the lens of aggregate supply. Is there enough credit there? Is that slowing down? If it is, then people are less likely to spend because they know they can't, or it's kind of a self-reinforcing cycle in that way. But so I'd, I'd finish with that particular point. Mm, interesting one, indeed. And obviously, Jordan, you're a, a multi-asset investor and we're rapidly coming to the end of the conversation. So I'd really love to get, you've talked about some really big concepts and theories and facts there and, and things that have happened. And I wondered if you could talk to 
how those kinds of factors actually, when it comes to your investment strategy, your process, your asset allocation and so on, how do those factors actually impact on your approach as a multi-asset investor? I guess that's that's the $64,000 question. It, it, it is, well, I think when I spoke to you last time, I mentioned it was an uncertain future for multi-asset in terms of the economic mm. horizon. Fast forward six, nine months, I don't think it's any clearer now, even that though you're changing. And that, that, is, that is the nature of market. But I think to answer that question in a kind of backward looking way, you know, I think it's hugely important to remain pragmatic and constantly challenge your own views. And I think at the start of the year, I, I, I mean, at, at the end of the cycle, at the end of the economic cycle, you should expect markets to behave irrationally. But what happens is, and we've seen this from the forecasters, they see, you know, one plus one is two, higher rates plus mm -hmm. lower consumer spending equals, you know, global recession. We've had the one, but we haven't had the plus one bit. And so we're still, we're still, we're still to get to two, if that makes sense. So it's a very butchered kind of analogy of what I'm trying to explain. But when, but when the second part of the equation is not dropping into place, you have to think about whether you're getting something wrong and, I think what happens is that people go, well, my one and the other bit hasn't come along, but I'm going to assume that we're at two already, even though we're not at two. And mm -hmm. I think what we think or how we think is not to be overly wedded to a medium term view, um, but have conviction in our short term uh, ideas and, and portfolio construction. And so that idea of being Flexible in, in your mindset, I think, is really important. And that has what has sort of allowed us to generate robust enough returns year to date, which was just to say we're not we're not wedded to a single idea. Sure, you know, we believe in the idea that an exogenous event may well bring the recession into the horizon and we'll see, as I mentioned, consumer demand lower and, and actually equity prices come down because corporates will not generate the same level of profitability. But um, I think I think I do see peers who have spent 12 months telling clients, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it. Rates are going to, you know, kill off everybody in different ways. You know, now's the time to be defensive. Our equity weights are at all time low. You know, we're seven months, eight months into the new year. And equity markets, maybe outside of the UK, are really robust and mm -hmm. actually, you know, very strong returns year to date. And so... All of my peers who are saying be defensive donor equities are the wrong side of of the the trade, so to speak. And I and I think that dogmatic approach is ultimately what kills performance and what what doesn't really help your client in the long term because you're sticking to a view because you believe it's absolutely the only view in town. And I think what we have tried to do is constantly challenge that, be pragmatic, and accept that at the end of a cycle there will be times when the market behaves irrational and we have to think about why that's the case and not just assume that one plus one is two because one of those ones might be missing. Um, and yeah, so so what have we done here? You know, at, at calendar life asset management, we've had to be nimble. If I think about, you know, we came into the start of this year nervous around valuations in the US equity market um, and in the aftermath of the AI story, uh, that came around in the, at the end of Q1, Q2. Um, 
I think we have to, we've had to challenge our views about what a long-term valuation should be in US equities. Maybe it should be structurally higher. Um, and I think I think we've we, we've we've made adjustments to our long-term asset allocation to reflect that. So whereas we might have been more slightly underweight, we've moved to more neutral way. Because as as the facts change, you know, we have to change our minds, which is that John Maynard Keynes phrase. And I think that is that is to me how multi-asset investing should think uh, you know I mean, i'll take a so if, if if being underway u.s equities was a, a negative you know driver of uh returns you know positive contributor was our significant underweight to uk gilts in the well we've had it on for uh, for, for 12 months now um but if you think going back the last three or four weeks where gilt yields have materially moved away from their u.s counterparts and their mm -hmm. european equivalents in terms of where the 10-year yield has been We've we've come to the assessment that maybe that's gone too far, and we shouldn't be as bearish on gilts as we have been for the last twelve months. And so we're we're now sort of buying back some gilt duration at, at the expense of selling our U.S. Treasury exposure. And that's 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 a reverse of our argument. Right? We were very very bearish on an idea um, that has played out as we intended. Oh, Jordan, thank you very much for for sharing all of that with us. And do you know what it's brought for me is. The reminder that when it comes to investing, it really is a mixture of art and science and that all too often we focus on the science bit, but we forget to take into account that broader perspective to to be adaptable, to be flexible. And, and I'm sure that's something that advisors and wealth managers who have been listening to us today will really identify with because that happens to them in their roles as well all the time. So thank you for reminding us about not being too wedded to an approach that you can't change when things need to be changed. So thank you for being with us today. No, thank you, Sue. Thank you, Brandon. It was, it was good to talk about some of the, the matters that perhaps aren't as easily read about in, in the financial press these days. Mm, indeed. And also we must thank you, our listeners, for tuning in again today. We hope you found it interesting. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research, and whatever necessary, legal advice, should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.